Elijah replied, Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Good morning, Grace Fishers. It's good to be here this morning. And I want to tell you a story starting out. When Krista, my wife, and I were uh, newly married... Uh, we purchased our first home on the west side of Indy. And this home happened to be a HUD home. And so we got a really good deal on it. I don't know if you've ever purchased a HUD home, but this particular one was a wreck. Uh, Like it could have been on one of the HGTV fixer-upper shows. It was that bad. And I looked all week for pictures. I couldn't find any. Of course, this was the time before I had a smartphone. And I was like, oh, the iPhone's not going to amount to anything. So... Nailed that. Um, So I don't have any pictures. You're just going to have to trust me. But this place was a mess. I mean, the garage door was hanging on by a thread. Like it was all unhinged and everything. You walk into the house and you walk onto the concrete slab because there was no carpet in the house except for one room. And let's just say that carpet was not salvageable. So we had to replace all the carpet. We had to replace the kitchen flooring. Nice cabinets, though. I was really surprised by that. We had to, um, oh, the yard. It was like a jungle. I mean, really needed a bag of weed and feed on it. And uh, the drywall. The drywall is what I will always remember. It's as if the previous owner had said to their children, here's a hammer. Here's a screwdriver. Go crazy on the drywall. I mean, this place was a mess. Now, thankfully, we had some really handy friends at the time, and so they came over, and they helped us make all the repairs, because this place really needed a complete overhaul. And as you know, making repairs can, it can take time, it costs a lot of money, it takes a lot of effort, but it's oh so satisfying, right, to take something that's in ruins and turn it around and see it rebuilt and made into something new. And that's what happened for us. This dilapidated structure became a home. Now, two years later, we sold it and made a killing. (laughs) Just kidding. It was around 2008, so economy, thank you. (laughs) But I tell you that story for a reason. Because we're in the middle of our series, the very middle of our series on the prophet Elijah, and we're examining some of the stories in his life. And today, the story that I get to share has to do with a nation that was in ruins, a people in dire need of a complete overhaul of major repairs. Now, this is one of my favorite stories in in all of Scripture. 
I, I don't know why, I'm just drawn to this story. And every time that I read through it, every time that I study it and spend time with it, I'm always amazed at what God reveals. So I'm so excited to journey together uh, with all of you. And uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 18. My hope is that the eyes of our heart, the collective eyes of our heart, would be enlightened today to the message that God has for us. So 1 Kings 18, if you're using one of the house Bibles, it's page 299. And while you're turning there, let me give you just a quick refresher of what has been taking place in Elijah's day, just in case you missed our very first week when our lead pastor, Kevin, gave an overview. You see, after the time of the judges, the nation of Israel asked God to give them an earthly king. They desired to be like other nations around them and be ruled by an earthly king, and so God granted their request. Now, after the time of King Solomon, he was Israel's third king. At the end of his reign, a civil war broke out, and so the nation divided. So on one side, you've got the northern tribes, and they were known as the nation of Israel. And then on the other side, you've got the southern tribes, known as the nation of Judah. And so Israel and Judah, during this time, were mostly ruled by wicked kings who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. <clears throat> And at that time, God would send prophets to his people, prophets to deliver a message, often a specific word of, of revelation or, or a judgment or a call back to repentance. And so in 1 Kings 18, we have the prophet Elijah, and he is sent to King Ahab. Now, something you should know about Ahab, he was ruling in the nation of Israel at the time, and the Bible says that he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord than did all the kings before him. And let me tell you, the kings before Ahab were evil. I mean, they did vile, despicable things in the eyes of the Lord. And so we've got Ahab, who's basically one-upping all of these kings. I mean, he was terrible. And his wife Jezebel was no better. In fact, some would could argue that she was worse. I, I mean, they were just awful. They were doing evil things. So you've got, you've got this evil power couple, right? And, and they're ruling Israel. And one of the things they were famous for was introducing Baal worship to the nation. Now, Baal was a false god. He was the chief pagan Canaanite deity of the time. And he was known as the god of fertility, and his, his sphere of influence extended to agriculture in regulating the seasons, rainfall, sunshine, things like that. And Baal worship became prevalent in the land of Israel. And so because of all the wickedness, all of the idolatry taking, taking place, the Lord caused a drought in the land for over three years. Now remember, Baal's realm of authority and dominion involved regulating the seasons at the time, including rainfall, but no rain fell on the land. So already we have the Lord, the one true God, exercising his lordship over Baal. So that's kind of what's going on. That's kind of the lay of the land, and that brings us to 1 Kings 18. And as we just heard in verse 19, Elijah issues a, a challenge, a, a showdown of sorts, right? 
He says, you bring your prophets to Mount Carmel, bring a couple bowls, I'll bring myself, and uh, we're going to go to our two respective altars. We're going to call on the name of our respective gods, the one who answers by fire. He's the one true God. Deal? Deal. But look with me in verse 21 when Elijah is issuing this challenge. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. What a reaction. Or lack thereof, I guess you could say. I like how the message paraphrase puts it. It says, nobody said a word, nobody made a move. Their silence spoke quite loudly. And my guess is that Israel had become so accustomed to the pagan worship and the idolatry taking place in their land that they had lost any sense of worshiping the Lord. And I would speculate that in that moment, they were dumbfounded. They didn't know what to say. So they said absolutely nothing. Now, I have to admit that it's easier to remain silent sometimes. It's easier to not take a stand. It's easier to ride the fence and and dodge the issues. But the Bible says a lot about responding. The Bible has a lot to say about responding to the call of the Lord. And we call that worship. The people of Israel were living in a fallen world, and they were being called back to live faithful lives. The nation was in ruins, in dire need of repair, and just like Israel, we too live in a fallen world. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to respond in worship by living faithful lives, because he is the only one who can mend our brokenness and repair what needs fixed. You see, in this story, this is no ordinary altar. I'm telling you, this is no ordinary altar. It points to something extraordinary, and it moves us to respond in worship. Read with me in verse 25 as the story continues. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bowls and prepare it and call on the name of your God. But do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bowls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming or is relieving himself. Or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. So they shouted louder. And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But still, there was no sound, no reply, no response. So, I mean, if you can imagine, this is quite the scene taking place. 
Just imagine this dusty hillside. You've got 450 prophets of Baal, and they're just working themselves hard just into this, this frantic, crazed frenzy. I mean, they're going nuts. They're, they're slashing themselves. Blood's gushing out. I mean, just imagine this scene. Yet, no response. Now, I think one of the reasons I, I like this story in the Bible is because we get a little comic relief here, Right? I mean, when you think of the prophets, it's easy to think, oh, prophets, dull and boring. Uh, they're, they're always cursing this, cursing that, pronouncing judgment, yada, yada, yada. Like, prophets get a bad rap in the Bible. But Elijah's got jokes, right? <laughs> I mean, this is funny. He does. He's got jokes. And, and, and so, I mean, knowing what was going on in the nation of Israel at that time, like, you can't blame him. You've got to take pride in your work. You've got to have fun once in a while. And so Elijah, right, so he begins talking trash, even to the point of suggesting a bowel movement, right? I mean, this is funny stuff. I love the Bible. I love this story. The Bible has a sense of humor. It really does. Now, on a serious note, something that I have never noticed before until preparing for this message. Something I've never noticed. The false prophets are voluntarily spilling their blood to get a response from their God. And after digging into that a little more, I found out that it was a common custom among pagan worship back then for blood to be spilled. Now blood, especially the blood of priests, had a special virtue which could move or compel a God to respond. Okay, just hold that thought. Hold that thought. We're going to get back to it in a second. So after Baal's prophets are wildly unsuccessful, it's Elijah's turn. Look with me in verse 30. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones one to represent each of the, of the tribes of Israel. And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said, and the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. <clears throat> he repaired the altar of the Lord. He took what was in ruins and he repaired it. Now, an altar simply means a place of sacrifice. Altars were a very, very important part of Israel's history. In fact, God had given the Israelites specific instructions back in the book of Exodus relating to the construction of altars. An altar was to be made, an altar to the Lord was to be made in every place where God caused his name to dwell. An altar was the sign of God's presence among the people, and these altars would often commemorate uh, special, mighty acts, gracious acts of God, often revealing his character and his nature so that the nation of Israel might worship him accordingly. 
And we see this throughout the Old Testament. Characters like Gideon and, and David and Joshua, they all built altars in the name of the Lord. It's a very, very important part of Israel's history. Now, this is where it gets good. It gets so good right here. Okay, the Hebrew word for repair comes from the root word rapha. Okay, can we just say that together? Rapha. Okay, right, it's a strong word. Rapha simply means healing, providing a remedy to restore, bringing back to a prior preferable state. And this particular word is used in conjunction with healing as forgiveness or as an act of redemption. And so Elijah healed the altar. He raffed the altar. Now the imagery here is overwhelming. And I think it would have been overwhelming for some of those Israelites on that day. Just imagine, you're, maybe you're one of the older Israelites. You've been around for a while. And you witness the prophet Elijah. He walks up. He starts gathering these stones. Twelve stones that he brings together. Twelve stones representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Not only that, he fills four jars. They're poured three times. Four times three, twelve. The imagery here is overwhelming. Because remember, at that time, Israel was divided into two separate kingdoms. The original 12 tribes, they've been separated. And I believe that in this moment, Elijah is illustrating to the people who they were intended and called to be, a unified people under the lordship of Yahweh God. I mean, what a moment. This is an incredible symbolic act of healing and restoration taking place for the nation of Israel. And I kind of think of it like a movie, right? Like if this was a movie, this is the part where the soundtrack just kind of, it starts to rise. The music just gets a little brighter and you start to see the people gathered there, the Israelites kind of nodding their head, maybe looking around at each other because they're starting to see the significance of what is taking place as Elijah heals the altar. All of a sudden, they're recalling their identity and remembering who they are. When I was growing up, especially during my teenage years, my mom would always tell me this one phrase. And it was usually when I was uh, getting ready to go out with friends or I was going out on a date, she would say, remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. And I remember the first time she said this to me, I was like, Mom, grammar, like, really? That, I know we grew up in southern Illinois, but come on, like, remember whose we are? And only after a while did I realize, oh, whose with a capital W. Remember whose you are. She was saying, Josh, remember you are his. You are a child of God. Therefore, let your thoughts and your actions reflect your true identity. And here, I believe Elijah is doing the same thing through the act of rebuilding the altar. It's like he's saying, children of Israel, for far too long, you have been a fractured nation. For far too long, you have been a broken people. It's time to remember whose you are. Do not be scattered like these 12 stones. Come together, become united once again, be healed just like this altar before you. I'm telling you, 
This is no ordinary altar. It points to something extraordinary. And it helps us to recall our identity, to remember whose we are. Well, we finally reach the pinnacle of this whole ordeal when we get to verse 36. So again, look with me. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. With an attitude of humility and trust, Elijah calls upon the Lord and the miraculous happens. Fire falls. And it was an all-consuming, powerful, refining fire from heaven. And it left no doubt in anyone's mind that the Lord is the one true God. You know, when I'm around a campfire, I just can't help myself to just stare into the fire. I stare at the logs and, and the embers. There, there's just something mesmerizing and something intriguing about fire. And in the Bible, uh, fire is used in, in many ways, often quite symbolically. And here we see the fire of the Lord in a mighty, powerful way and as a sign of his presence among the people. It also proved his lordship over Baal and over all Israel because this fire, it was a cleansing fire. It was a purifying, refining fire. You see, Israel's time had come to make a choice. Their time had come to go through the fire, to be cleansed and purified as a nation, as a people. The time had come to be healed and made whole. This was no ordinary altar. No ordinary altar. It points to something extraordinary, and it invites us to receive his healing. We see a people lost, divided, broken, in need of restoration, in need of a fresh outpouring from God Most High. And we see an altar, a place of sacrifice for God to come down once again and display his glory. And we see a sacrifice, a life, pure and spotless, laid upon the altar. And there was blood and there was water flowing down simultaneously, purifying, life-giving, life-changing blood. Did you know that in 1 Kings 18, 
This particular altar is the only solitary altar of the Lord mentioned after the time of King Solomon. You see, when King Solomon built the temple to the Lord, it included the altar of burnt offering and the altar of incense. And so there was no need for the nation of Israel to build these altars anymore. In fact, they were commanded by the Lord, if you come across an altar, tear it down, because more than likely, it's a pagan altar. But yet, Elijah rebuilds this altar. This single, solitary altar stands alone. Why? What's the significance of Elijah repairing this altar? Perhaps, just perhaps, it was no ordinary altar, and it did point to something extraordinary. Perhaps we can see another people lost, divided, broken, in need of restoration, in need of a fresh outpouring from God Most High. And we see another altar, a place of sacrifice for God to come down once again and display his glory. And we see a sacrifice, a life pure and spotless laid upon that altar. And there was blood and there was water flowing down simultaneously, purifying, life-giving, life-changing blood. Do you see it? I remember singing a song about it growing up. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I love the Bible. I love God's holy word because it's a continuous story. The Bible is a story meant to be seen as a whole, read together because every single page is whispering the name of Jesus. Every single page, every single account is leading to the greatest act of sacrifice ever recorded in human history. Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord. He healed the altar of the Lord. But an even greater act of healing and restoration took place centuries later upon a lonely, rugged altar. In fact, the prophet Isaiah foretold of this event. He prophesied about this healing moment when he said, by his wounds... We are Rapha. We are healed. We are restored. We are redeemed. It is the cross. And it was no ordinary altar. And it points to someone extraordinary, Jesus Christ, our healer and our redeemer. And unlike the prophets of Baal, who spilled their blood to compel their God to respond, our God voluntarily spills his blood because of the love in his heart for his people as he brings them back to himself. That's our God. 
and he reigns supreme above all other. We sang it earlier. You have no rival. You have no equal. Nothing can stand against our God. After the fire fell, the prophets were destroyed, and eventually rain fell and healed the land. And in the Old Testament, one of the many names of the Lord is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And I truly believe that we still serve a God who heals, a God who comes down and rebuilds lives. And perhaps you're in a season of life right now where you're needing some healing, some restoration. Maybe you feel like an old dilapidated HUD home in need of repair or an altar with misplaced stones that needs to be rebuilt. Perhaps you simply need a fresh outpouring from God Most High. Perhaps you just need the fire of God to rain down once again and acknowledge his presence in your life. Or maybe you just need to remember that the Lord, he is God. Yes, he is supreme. He is God above all others. Perhaps maybe you're here and for the very first time, you're in a season where you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus and say yes to him. No matter the season you find yourself in, my hope and my prayer for all of us is that we would recognize our God is a healer. He's still doing the work. He takes broken things, he puts them back together, he picks up the pieces, even when we don't have the strength to do so. And it is oh so satisfying to see something that was once in ruins get turned around, rebuilt, and be made brand new. And so as we seek to live faithfully in a fallen world, this is my encouragement. Let's keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus and the empty cross. Because the cross still moves us to respond in worship with faithful lives. The cross still helps us to recall our identity in Jesus. It helps us to remember whose we are. And the cross still invites us to receive his healing. The gracious, loving presence of Jesus, our Savior. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you for being the God who heals. Lord, I thank you that you continually call us back to yourself. I thank you that you are not a God who is distant, but you are a God who is involved, a God who shed his blood so that we might be saved. Lord, I pray that we would continue to be a people who not only seek your healing and your presence in our lives, but a people that are united. We as a church, and not just the church here, but the church universal, united as we keep our eyes fixed upon you and as we seek to live faithfully in this world with all that we are. Lord Jesus, we believe 
you still move. You still convict. You still change. You change our hearts. You change us. Lord, you remain constant in our, our lives. We just thank you for that. Thank you for your presence, Jesus. Amen.